open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And that's going to be the last time I'm going to make that announcement for a while. I've asked you to do that 16 straight weeks in a row. We've come to the final paragraph as we've been preaching verse by verse through the book of 2 Timothy. I want to let you know up front, at the end of this message, we are going to be participating in what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. If you're a believer in Christ and uh, you want to participate in that with us, then you should have received elements as you walked in. If you didn't get those on the way in, that's fine. Just pop right up and you can go navigate your way. Just grab them right now. Nobody's going to care. It's easier for you to do it now than it is to do it later. But if you want to get those, they're right back here at the entrances as you walked in. And uh, I also want to remind you of something I told you last week. If you weren't in church last week, if you missed that announcement, um, last week we celebrated the one-year anniversary of actually moving into this new worship center. And over the past year, many of you have been kind of trickling back in as you felt safer to come back to church. Welcome to church. Some of you are probably here for the first time being in church since all of that happened. And we want to give you an update. Last, year, last week, I told you last year when we moved into this building, this building was a $7.8 million project. When we moved in on the day that we moved in, there was a $960,000 remaining um, on the balance to pay for this thing. Good news is a million dollars had already been pledged by you all to take care of that. So fast forward a year and I told you last week we are down to the remaining $140,000 to be able to say this building is completely paid for. And many of you were not part of this part. We prepared a place for you. We sacrificed. We gave generously. Some of you have folded in because there's a place to come. Could I ask if you guys could participate in this part? If you're new, just get a checkbook out, write a check, help us take care of this. I would love to make the announcement next week that our church is once again debt-free. Anybody be excited about that? Yeah. So if you're clapping, then take care of that, okay? And if you're not, take care of it anyway, all right? So we want to be a part of a miracle, and we are watching God build His church because uh, some water and some plant, but God is the one who gives the increase. Now, uh, today, I just want to be upfront with you about this message, okay? Now, this is a, this is a little unique message here. I'm, I'm about to read this last paragraph. Let me set the context. Remember, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing. These were the Apostle Paul's last words. Uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote about 13 different books in the New Testament. About half the New Testament was written by this guy named Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is his last letter. He knows he's about to die, and he is in the process of passing the baton to the next generation. He's passing it to his protege named Timothy, and he's telling Timothy, Timothy, fan the flame. You got this little flicker. We need to fan it into an inferno. Don't let the fire die. You're not going to be able to rely upon me anymore. You're going to need to rely upon the Holy Spirit. You got to fan the flame. He tells him, preach the word. You're going to be opposed. Men are going to be lovers of self rather than lovers of God, but you can't let the difficulty uh, make extinguish the flame in your heart. Fan the flame. So, having said all of that, Paul comes to his last words. I'm about to read the last words. Let me warn you, it's a little bit like reading the phone book, okay? We're going to make sense of it all. He's going to mention about 17 different people in the final paragraph. I would just simply say, these are church people. Do you know any church people? 
This morning as I was in the green room uh, praying with the band and, and about to come out, I just told them, I'm like, hey, today the, the title of the message is Church People. And church people are just simply a glorious mess. And uh, when I said that, Laura, who plays our keys up here, she's the former pastor's wife, and she's at, now she's down here on the front row, and she's, she's, she, I, I said, it's just church people, and she immediately smiled, and then she did this. <laughs> Do you know that emoji that is, this emoji? You know that emoji? That's my favorite emoji. And when you just say the words church people, there's just something in my mind that just... And that just kind of happens around the office during the week where we're trying to love you people and disciple you people and mature you people and thank you people for serving, all these different, there's just kind of a smile that comes to your face and it's just like, yep. Hey, have you ever had an encounter with a church person? Um, are, would you consider yourself one of the church people? Some of you came to church today in spite of some church people that you know. Others of you came to church today because of some church people that you know. They're just kind of a mixed bag. So today we're going to learn about these church people. Let me just read to you the phone book here, beginning in 2 Timothy 4, verse 9. Your eyes are on your page, and I am reading from God's Word. Do your best to come to me soon. There's the first church person. It's Timothy. Paul says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, there's the second one, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord rescued me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 19, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onephorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Charlie, Claudia and all the brothers the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. And the word you there in the original language is plural, so it literally means grace be with you all. Or if you're from the South, the appropriate translation is grace be with y'all. And you're going to need some grace, y'all to deal with all y'all 
church people. I believe that Paul has given us categories of church people that I could make it argument are all in this room right now. I've dealt with every kind of church person that's mentioned here on the list. And, and if you've been reading through the New Testament in 100 days, you read about most of these people this week in the book of Acts. And uh, I'm going to take some time to kind of unpack some things that we know about these people. Some of them are very anonymous, but others of them are very real. Church people are gloriously strange people. And before we start, let me just say this. Not all church people are God's people. Did you know that there are some people who occupy a seat in a church every Sunday morning, and yet they've never genuinely repented of sin, they've never had their lives changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, they've never had a new birth experience. They've never received Christ by faith. The problem is, is they are trusting in their church attendance or their Bible knowledge or their church membership rather than trusting in Christ alone for salvation. It's not enough to be a church person. You have to be one of God's people. And if you are genuinely united with Christ, then you are united with every other person that is united with Christ, which makes you part of the body or the church of Christ. Interestingly, the word church in Scripture means, the actual Greek word is ekklesia. It means gathering. It means assembly. It means a joint body that's connected to one another. And all kinds of different types, various sizes and shapes and weirdness. And yet, if we are in Christ, we are the church people here. And many of us are in categories that Paul mentions here. Uh, Church people are disappointing. How many of you have discovered that that's been true for you? How many of you have some wounds and scars from knowing some church people in your life? How many of the people that you know have some wounds and scars from you as a church person, right? Um, some of you um, have, have even thought about giving up because church people have, have deeply disappointed you. The people out there in the world that are not church people, their greatest accusation against us is what? Church people are what? Oh, you know this about us, Right? And all you have to do when somebody says that is just nod your head and said, absolutely. We are all hypocrites, us church people. We're just the only ones humble enough to admit it. That's why we go to church, because we're such a mess. We're in this process where God is sanctifying us and cleaning us up, and, and he's, he's making us into what he's declared us to be, which is righteous in Christ, but we're so far from that. And so we come to sit under the authority of God's word, to be transformed by the power of God's spirit, and come together as God's people on mission in the world. That's what it means to be a church person. Church people are gospel people, and church people are loved people in spite of all of our weirdness and all of our hypocrisy and all of our sin. If we are in Christ, we have a lot to look forward to in heaven as church people, perfected church people. So I'm going to give you 12 different characteristics of church people. Can you handle 12 points this morning? We're going to have to move fast. Are you going to listen fast? Yes, Okay, so here's the first one. Here's the first characteristic. Church people need young people. Church people need young people. We get that from verse 9. Do you see what the old person Paul is saying to the young person Timothy? Do your best 
to come to me soon. He doesn't know whether he has hours, days, or weeks left in his life, but he knows time is running out. And the old person, Paul, wants one last opportunity to have an eye-to-eye conversation with the young person, impressing upon him the urgency to take the baton, to remain faithful, to fan the flame once again. Now, we don't know whether or not Timothy actually made it to Paul in time for that conversation, but you can sense the urgency. I'm I'm so grateful for the older people in our church. How many of you are are an old person? There's like three of you here. And uh, how many of you are a young person? How many, how many young people? Yeah, that's right. If you know somebody that's older than you, it's like I'm a younger person. So you can put yourself in either one of those categories there. But we have, when we started the church 13 years ago, there were a lot of older people that, that like really threw their lives into this thing. And what I've always appreciated about the older people in our church is they believed this, that church people need young people. But can I tell you, if you're an older person, the tendency is for us to want to hold on to power and position because we know something about young people. Young people have a lot of energy, but they lack a lot of wisdom. Older people have a lot of wisdom, it's just that they're lacking some energy. Older people need the younger people. Younger people need the older people. What happened in verse nine needs to continually happen in this church. It's like a blender. We don't wanna have like events for older people over here and events for younger people over here. We wanna blender. We throw you all in the mix together so that we get the best energy and the best wisdom collectively as a body. And so if you are a younger per, if you are an older person, thank you for having a heart for younger people. I've, I've, I've had older people in the church say, you know, I'm not like a big fan of the way you guys do the worship around here, but I'll tell you what I am a fan of. I'm a fan of young people in church. And I, I can like give up my preferences on the way we do worship around here in, in favor of seeing young people singing their faces off in glory to God. And so it's one of the ways that we make a statement around here is like, we want to empower the next generation. But it's, it's risky because young people are immature. Young people are stupid sometimes and, and they're often messy and young people are expensive. Have you noticed that young people seldom pay their fair share? Hey dad, going out to get some fast food And since you don't have to pay for babysitters anymore, how about buying the food? Venmo request, bam. That's a hypothetical situation. That's never happened in my home. I'm just, I've heard of of children of other pastors that do these kinds of things. But um, young young people, like they want you to pay for the stuff. That's why, it's because young, young people don't have a lot of resources. Older people tend to have the resources. And yet if we use our resources on the young people, the young people turn into mature believers, worshipers, followers of Christ, people are going to take the baton like Timothy's going to take it from Paul. So embrace the opportunity as an older person to do what Paul did. Young person, come to me. Come to me soon. I will fill your ears full of wisdom that you will need in life. 
And if you're a younger person, all you younger people, are you going to come? Are you going to come soon? Are you surrounding your lives with people that are older than you that have what you need? Not financial resources so much, but knowledge and wisdom and godliness and gospel to pour into your life. Young people, come to me soon so that you can get what you literally need. Young people, join the church. Young people, serve the church. Young people, do the things that matter most. Spend your energy on the things that will count for eternity. That's what Paul is trying to, to do in his, in his uh, protege, Timothy. Here's the second thing about church people. Church people will be deserted by other people. Now, this is one of the sadder statements that we will make today, but it's true, and you know it's true. Paul knew it was true. Look at verse 10. For Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas is mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament. In Philippians, chapter, uh, in Philippians 24, Paul calls him his fellow worker, his gospel partner. Now, if Demas was known as a fellow worker, Demas must have shown some signs that he loved the Lord he loved the church and he loved Paul. And yet by the time we get to this season of Demon's life, Demas's life, he's in love with the world. And I don't think if you ask Demas, Demas, do you no longer love the church? Do you no longer love the Lord? I don't think Demas would have said, oh, I don't love, I don't love the Lord at all. I think that his heart was divided. And listen, if Demas was in love with what the world had to offer in the first century. Can I ask you a question? How much more of a temptation is that for us in the 21st century? We don't know what Demas loved about the world. Maybe he loved the praise of men. Maybe he loved the affluence that money could bring or position or power. Those are things in the world. Things that John, the apostle, identified that we aren't to love. He said, do not love the world, neither the things in the world, for, uh, the, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So those are always going to be temptations for us. But we know people that used to be a part of the church. They used to love the church. They used to identify as church people. They're not here anymore. Why? Because they've made the same mistake that Demas has made. They have loved the Lord. They have, a div they have loved the world. They have a divided heart. And so many of them are self-deceived. How many people do you know is like, no, I really love the world more than I love the Lord. Most people are not gonna admit that, but Paul knew what the problem was. It was a matter of the heart. His heart was divided. Third thing about church people. Church people love to serve anonymously. Second part of verse 10 says, there's this guy named Crescens. And all we know about Crescens is what Paul said here in verse 10. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Crescens is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. We don't know anything else he did. He didn't write a book of the Bible. He probably didn't preach too much. He was a behind the scenes guy. He was a guy that just did his job, 
faithfully served, did what he was supposed to do, prayed, supported. One thing we do know is he went to Galatia. We don't know, we don't know a whole lot about Crescens, but we do know a lot about the church that was in Galatia. And let me read to you what it says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul, writing to the Galatian church, says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. That's where Crescens went. Crescens went to Galatia to prevent the Galatians from doing what Demas did, deserting the faith, loving the world. There's countless people like Crescens in this church, and I am so grateful for them. They're never going to be up on the platform. They're probably not going to be known by a large number of people in the church, but they attend every Sunday. They serve on teams. They pray for you. They volunteer. They gather. They give. They love their families. They live out the gospel. And they rarely get the thanks that they deserve. But God knows who the Crescens are in church. God sees and God's going to reward them. And they're going to have a greater reward than some of us that get in the lights and get the platform and get the microphone sometimes because they love the Lord. Our church is full of people like that. And I want to say, if you're one of the Crescens in our church, thank you. Thank you for doing the dirty work and doing the things beside, behind the scenes. Fourth thing about church people is this. Church people do hard things. Last part of verse 10, we're introduced to a guy named Titus. And all we know in this section is Titus went to Dalmatia. Now, you have to know something about the relationship between Paul and Titus. Titus is mentioned 13 different times in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, one of the New Testament books was a letter that Paul wrote to his ministry partner, Titus. Here's what you got to know about Paul. Paul was an apostle. He was an entrepreneur. He loved to start new things. And once it got started, he loved to pick himself up, move himself down the road and start something new in another place. Paul's desire was to preach the gospel and start churches in as many geographical locations as he possibly could in his lifetime. That means that Paul didn't stay in one place for very long. Once he got something going, he needed to pass the baton and let somebody else develop the work, order the work, disciple the people, build the church. Titus was Paul's most trusted ministry partner. Titus represented Paul in places where Paul couldn't go or stay because Paul couldn't be in more than one place at a time. In um, one place in the New Testament, Paul calls Titus his true son in the faith. He calls him his brother. He calls him his partner. He calls him his fellow worker. And interestingly, uh, we find in the book of Titus that Paul sent Titus to a place called Crete. Crete was this island off the coast, kind of like Alcatraz, all right? This is where all the crazy people lived, all right? 
And we know that because of what Paul wrote to Titus about the Cretans. Let me share with you what Paul said about these Cretans. Paul is writing to Titus and he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. In other words, they're church people. This testimony is true. Therefore, here's your assignment, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And then he goes on, <laughs> this, is what, this is what he says next. He said, I left you in Crete to put in order the things that remain and install elders. So here are your elder candidates, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I'm praying for you. Good luck with that. Titus was willing to go to the hard places and do the hard things. Now, Paul had been there, and so now we have genuine Christ followers who need to be sanctified from their lying and turned into truth tellers, and evil beasts that need to turn into loving servants, and gluttons that need to be turned into those who are generous and give away what they have. Guess who was responsible for developing those characteristics in those people? Titus. Titus was a disciple maker. Titus was somebody that was willing to get in and mix it up in the mess. It seemed like the harder the assignment was, the more Titus wanted it. He went to the hard places. Another time, Titus voluntarily went to Corinth. Have you ever read about the Corinthians? I mean, they were a mess too. They were fighting and they had lawsuits against each other and they were in sexual immorality. Titus said, I'll go there. I'll serve there. I'll straighten them out. And then apparently he went to Dalmatia, which is where Corella de Ville lives. So, you know, you just, you, that was a joke. It was not a scholarly comment, all right? The Dalmatians, you know. Anyway, so anyway, I, I think about people in our church like that. They're the small group leaders, they're the soul care counselors, and they are willing to get into the mess in people's lives, untie their knots, and help them get to a better place. That's what Titus did. Church people do hard things. Another thing church people do, church people, this is my favorite point of the message, church people take care of their leaders. This is a favorite point. Verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Remember, Paul's in a prison, Paul's in a dungeon, Paul is about to be sentenced to death, and Luke is right there beside him. If you've been reading through the book of Acts this week, you see that the pronouns change in the book of Acts in chapter 16. Luke wrote the book of Acts. In chapter 16, he starts using the pronoun we because Paul and Luke became partners and whatever Paul did, Luke did. Do you know what Luke's profession was? Luke was a physician. Do you know anybody in the Bible that needed a physician any more than the Apostle Paul? Can you imagine the broken bones, the cuts, the scars, the concussions from the beatings that Paul took because of the opposition he received? Luke said, that guy, he needs some help. 
and I got some resources to help that guy. I want to care for him physically, mentally, emotionally. Every pastor needs a Luke to pastor him, to care for him. As he pours himself out, where does he go for healing and hope and encouragement? Luke was that kind of a guy. And Luke brought all of his skills and abilities to employ them in the expanse of the gospel. We've said many times that Paul wrote half the New Testament. As far as word count goes, Luke wrote half the New Testament. Longest gospel, Luke. And the book of Acts, two of the longest books we have in the Bible. He used his research skills. He used his diagnosis skills to understand are people telling the truth. He listened to eyewitnesses. And, and so he used all of that in um, service for the gospel. Let me ask you a question. What professional skills do you have? You doctor, lawyer, plumber, painter, educator, are you just a servant? Are you using those? Are you making those available to the church people? That's what our lives are for. It's not to make money. It's not to build your reputation. It's to build the church for the glory of God. That's the kind of person that Luke was. And he never left the side of Paul. Notice, of all the church people, Everybody was gone at this point except Luke. Now, um, Paul, I'm sure, got grumpy. Paul, I'm sure, had flaws. And yet, so often, when the pastor or the leader or the entrepreneur is exposed as having some issues, a lot of church people just kind of say, well, I'm leaving. Not Luke. He wanted to be a part of Paul's life till the end. Luke alone is with me. Number six, church people need second chances. Amen? Anybody here need a second chance? Yeah. Aren't you glad that a church is a place for second chances? Notice here in verse 11, the next guy that's mentioned is a guy named Mark. He says, get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. That is the complete opposite of what Paul said about Mark in Acts chapter 13. Mark started out on the first missionary journey with Paul, but when the opposition arose and things got hard, Mark went home. And that did not sit well with Paul. In fact, seven years later, Paul was so offended that when Barnabas said, I think we ought to take Mark, he's like, I'm not going with that guy. That guy's not going to last. And that created a division between Paul and Barnabas. And Barnabas said, well, I kind of have the gift of encouragement. I'll take Mark. And Paul said, you can have him. I'm going another way. And yet when Paul gets to the end of his lifetime, notice what he says. Get Mark. Bring him with you. He's useful to me for ministry. Why? Because of a guy like Barnabas that gave him a second chance and encouraged him, built him up, mentored him. He believed that he had a lot of useful things that he could bring. And so now Paul has seen the fruitfulness. Church ought to be a place where people can get second chances. Um, this ought to be a place where people get grace. There's people here that are on their second, third, fourth marriage. We want you to have 
your last marriage here. Actually, that's, that's the way that we want that to happen. There's people here that have addictions. There's people here that have criminal records. This is a place for people to find Jesus and the hope of the gospel. And so we're going to have a place for people like Mark who need second chances. Number seven, church people are God's delivery system. Verse 12 says this, Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is where Timothy was pastoring a church. Paul just said, Timothy, I want you to come to me. In order to come to me, Timothy was going to have to leave Ephesus. So Paul thinking ahead, if Timothy's going to leave Ephesus, I better send Tychicus to go fill the gap. Paul was so practical. He didn't want to leave God's people, church people, without a pastor. And so Paul sent Tychicus. Now, Tychicus is mentioned in the book of Ephesians, in the book of Colossians, in the book of Titus, and here in the book of 2 Timothy. Tychicus was Paul's delivery system for his letters, which eventually landed in Scripture. Without the guy named Tychicus, you would not have the book of Ephesians, Colossians, Titus, or 2 Timothy in your Bible. There was no email, there was no text, there was no streaming video, there was no YouTube. If you wanted to get a message from one location to the next, you had to put it on paper or a scroll or something, put it in a guy's hand, and that guy had to be trusted to get it where it needed to go. Do you understand that if you are a Christian, you are a Tychicus? With all the technology that we have, with all the social media, with all the email, God has never changed his method of delivering the gospel. It is from your mouth into the ears of another person. So Tychicus is a great example of what God wants us to do every day. Yesterday, I uh, went for a long bike ride and um, so about halfway through, I, I was on this really kind of a country road and I saw this nice body of water and there was a bridge. It was really pretty place. And I looked down, there was a guy fishing at the bottom of the bridge. And I'd been reading the book of Acts and I'd been thinking about how God just moves people all around and there's all these divine appointments that God makes and God gets the message in the right place to the right people. And I was, I was just thinking about that. I was like, I'm gonna go down there and talk to that guy. And so um, I went down there and... This guy's name was Clarence, and he caught a fish while I was watching, and just like, I just like, I wish I was Clarence on a lot of days of the week, just out in the middle of nowhere with, alone by my thoughts. And I just started engaging him. He really opened up. He's, um, he said when he was 28 years old, he, he was probably in his 60s at this point, he was 28 years old, he said, right up here on Redfield Road, I, um, I had this major collision. I was driving drunk, and um, I broke my neck. I was in the hospital for a year. He went on to tell me he'd been married twice. It's kind of funny. He said, that, he said the first divorce was my problem. Second divorce was her problem. And Anyway, we just talked. And I just engaged him. I'm like, well, how did your car wreck and your divorces impact your relationship with God? And he said, well, I was saved as a, as a young man, but I was backslidden when I had my accident. I got caught up in a wrong crowd. And, and uh, I've come back to the Lord and 
he identified himself as one of the church people and I was like, I know some church people. And, and so we, we had this great conversation. Just, I said, you know, I was reading my Bible this morning in the, book of, in the book of Romans and the Lord says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And he assured me that he had eternal life in Christ because of what he did on the cross. And so that's the delivery system. It, and as much as what I'm doing today is delivering, I, that, that's more normal. This is weird. That's normal. That conversation is normal. At least it should be normal for you. Because I can only talk to one Clarence, but you guys, if we could multiply the delivery system like Tychicus and get what you hear in this place into the ears of the people that you know in the places you travel, that would expand the gospel. That's what church people are supposed to do. Number eight, church people bring whatever is needed. Look at verse 13. When you come, Paul says, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Paul says, I don't want you to come alone. <laughs> I need you to bring Mark. And I also need some stuff. I got some tangible needs that need to be met. Apparently, church people need to be kept warm. They need a cloak. And they need to be educated. They need books. And they need to write letters. That's what the parchments are for. Parchments are animal skins that was used for writing. Paul's sitting in a prison. He wants a cloak. He wants books. And he wants to write some letters. It's a great example. Now, in the book of Acts, uh, we know that Paul went to Troas, where Carpus was, on two occasions. On the first occasion, Paul had to leave immediately in a hurry because he got the Macedonian call in Troas. So he had to immediately go meet the, the Macedonian. The second time he's in Troas, the Bible says he stayed for seven days. Question. Where did Paul stay? We don't exactly know, but we know that his friend Carpus is in Troas. It's possible Troas opened his home. He was hospitable to the Apostle Paul. It's even possible that Carpus allowed Paul to store some of his stuff there, like his clothes. It's like, here's your clothes closet, here's your library. And here's your desk. Here's your writing utensils. And Paul says, I need you on your way, Timothy. Stop by Troas, pick up my stuff, and bring it to me. Can I ask you a question? How big is your Christian library? What's in your Christian library? Maybe better question. Do you know how to read? Do you know that reading books by dead men are better than reading Instagram posts? Do you know that that's healthier for your soul? Um, I got a text from my son last night, Zach. Zach learned how to read and uh, he's become a book lover. He loves to read these great books on doctrine and theology. And so he texted me last night and he was in Barnes and Noble. He texted me a picture of the latest college football magazine that just came out. I'm like, and then he said this. He said, dad, I was just in Barnes and Noble and it is sad to see how many of the Christian books are the wrong books. I only saw like three that were good ones. Let me give you a little advice. If you're looking for good Christian books, 
Barnes and Noble is probably not the place where you need to go. If you want a good Christian book, go to one of your pastors and your pastor will load you up, all right? When I have time to talk about all the list of books that we want to get into you, that's coming in the next uh, couple of months here. But if you want to, like Paul, absorb some good books, you need to get the right books. Number nine, church people can cause great harm. This is a sad point, especially if you're a pastor. Look at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Now, if you are a Christian who's going to be a Tychicus and you're going to deliver the message, you are going to be opposed. It is important to remember that when you are opposed, it is not the messenger that is being opposed. It is the message that's being opposed. That is why so many messengers are compromising the message because they don't want to be opposed. We're not going to do that around here, and I don't want you to do that either. The job of the pastor is not to fight his enemies. It's not to correct all of his opponents. The job of the pastor is to faithfully proclaim the message that can save his enemies from their own sin. God will take care of those that oppose. And that's what Paul said. The Lord's going to take care of him. The Lord's going to deal with him. The Lord's going to repay him according to his deeds. Now, this guy, Alexander... There's several different guys in the Bible named Alexander, but we think, we're pretty certain, that the Alexander that Paul is referring to here is the same one that he referred to in the first letter that he wrote to Timothy. So interestingly, in the first chapter of 1 Timothy and the last chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul mentions this guy Alexander that did him great harm. That's, that's, that's what guys do. They, get, they occupy space in your head, I can, I can tell you. That that happens from time to time. Now, let me tell you about this guy named Alexander. Um, Paul didn't really stress over this guy too much because in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, this is what he said. He said, yeah, we handed Alexander over to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. All right, so apparently we all need to learn not to blaspheme. And apparently... You can learn it from your pastor or from Satan. You get to choose. If you choose not to learn not to blaspheme from your pastor, your pastor may turn you over to Satan and say, I guess you're going to have to learn it from him. Now, given those two options, which teacher would you rather have? Your pastor or Satan? You say, I'm not quite sure there's a difference. Listen, you would rather learn it from your pastor. So that's what Paul says. Like, listen, I tried to teach him. He wouldn't listen to me. So I guess, Satan, you, you take care of him. And that's how much God is committed to you learning not to blaspheme, not to speak against the Holy Spirit, not to resist the Holy Spirit, to, but to allow him to have his work in your life. Number 10, church people sometimes fail to show up when they are needed most. Look at verse 16. Paul says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, 
but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul's crime was that he was charged for, but he was a Roman citizen, which means that he had the right to a fair trial. And just like in the American political, American justice system, you're, you have a right to call witnesses in your defense. So can you imagine Paul's there in the Roman court, and I don't know if he's got a defense attorney, but defense attorney turns around like, anybody want to say anything good about Paul? Anybody want to speak a witness? Any, have any witness that says he's, he's innocent? Crickets. Paul had ministered to thousands of people. And yet, in the time when Paul needed them most, nobody came to stand with him. And that is sadly true of so many church people. We need you. There is more work to be done than we can do by ourselves. But too many church people see church as a commodity to consume. You're coming to church to be served rather than to serve. And if you're able to come to church and yet you're relying upon the live stream, it's like, hey, that live stream is intended to be an on-ramp for you to actually physically get here so that you can actually contribute something rather than just to consume something. Church people can fail to show up when they're needed most. And that's been true throughout history, but especially in this season, it's like, we need you. We need to build this place. And if you're new to our church, I hope you understand this is not a place just to come and consume. This is a place for you to come and contribute. There, there was a pastor back in the 1700s. His name was Charles Simeon. In 1783, Charles Simeon was appointed as the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge in the middle of Cambridge University in London, England, one of the most prominent universities at that time. And, and Charles Simeon had grown up just dreaming that one day he might be able to preach at Cambridge Church. And sure enough, at the age of 23, Charles Simeon was appointed the pastor at Cambridge Church. However, the established church people that were members of the Cambridge Church were not fans of Charles Simeon. They did two things. Number one, they locked the doors of the church so that their pastor could not use the facility during the week. Secondly, on Sunday when they opened the doors of the church, the establishment came in and locked their pew boxes. You have to understand, back in the day, if you had a family that was a member of a church, you bought, you purchased your pew box, and you were the only ones that could use the pew box. The church members came, locked their pew boxes so that no one else could sit in the pews. The only people that, the people that came, they had to stand in the aisles, they had to kind of stand along the, the walls, they couldn't even sit down because there were, the church pew boxes were locked for 10 years. Charles Simeon preached as just a few people stood in the aisles and the seats were all unoccupied. He wrote about that incident and this is what he said. In this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. That's a good pastor right there. 
It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the Isles, almost forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would be on the whole as much good as, the con- if, the, as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. This comforted me many, many times when, without such a reflection, I should have sunk under my burdens. Do you see what he did? He's like, church people can do such great harm. They can fail to show up when they're needed most. They can be AWOL. They can forsake their duties. And the way that we survive that as pastors is just asking God to pour out his spirit on the people who actually show up. Charles Simeon's a good pastor. It's a good lesson for all of us. Now, if you're sitting on the sidelines, you need to get to church. You need to occupy your place. You need to be where you're supposed to be. Charles Simeon went on and he outlived most of those people that owned the pew boxes. He pastored the church for 54 years until the day that he died. But it was only this kind of thinking that helped him on the days that it was most painful. Number 11, church people will say goodbye to people they love. Look at verse 19. I want you to skip 17 and 18 for now. We'll come back to it in a minute. Verse 19 says, greet Prisca. You may also know her as Priscilla. Apparently Prisca was a pet name. Priscilla and Aquila, her husband, and the household of Onesiphorus and Erastus. And he goes on to talk about Trophimus. And then he mentions Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all these brothers. So he mentions all these different people. What's he doing? Paul's saying goodbye. At the time that he's in his most difficult trial, in his remaining moments, he thinks about the people that he loves the most. And he's realizing he may never see these people again. Now, can you imagine receiving the letter and Timothy not knowing whether or not Paul was dead or alive and Paul going to give these greetings to Priscilla and Aquila and Trophimus and all these different people and them recognizing the one that has been the greatest spiritual influence on them, the one humanly speaking that is responsible for them being church people, they may never see again. Church people will have to say goodbye to people they love. It's part of the process. Pastors come, pastors go. Leaders come, leaders go. Church people come, church people go. And one of the things that's interesting throughout the Bible, if you've read the Old Testament, is is how often God just kind of uses one leader and he dies and next up. You think about that with Moses and Joshua. Moses was so influential and God used him to deliver the people out of Egypt and uh, give them the Ten Commandments and It just very simply says in the book of Joshua, hey, Joshua, Moses is dead. Next, God uses another leader in the process. And so there's often times that people that have made great impact on our lives, we have to be careful that we don't put our faith and hope and trust and confidence in one particular leader. It's one of the reasons why God's governance of a church is so... um, clear about having a plurality 
of leaders. You're not attached to just one. So that one's gone, you're following the Lord and whoever he brings into place to fulfill that role is the one that we recognize as God's servant. But we serve God and not that particular servant. Um, I heard somebody say recently, you know, every pastor is an interim pastor. Have you ever thought about that? Like, I, I'm privileged that I get to be your first pastor. I hope I'm not going to be your last because if the church dies when I die, that, like I failed somewhere along the way, right? So we're always passing the baton. We're always in succession. We're always looking to raise up the next leader. If the mission of the church stops when the pastor stops, then the pastor didn't do his job. Here's the last point. Number 12. Church people need Jesus. Amen? That's right. Look at verse 17. Paul doesn't want us thinking about Timothy and Erastus and all these different anonymous people. He wants us thinking about the Lord. Look at verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. I, I think he must have been having his devotionals in the book of Daniel that morning, right? I mean, it's almost like he's Daniel in the lion's den and, and the Lord rescued him and the Lord stood with him. He goes on in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. It's, it's almost a paradox, right? Paul's saying, the Lord will rescue me and bring me into his kingdom. How did the Lord rescue him? How did the Lord bring him into his kingdom? He allowed his head to be severed from his body. The worst possible tragedy was viewed by Paul as a rescue operation by God. Do you understand that the Lord's rescue may involve pain. God may not always rescue you from pain, but God will safely deliver you into his kingdom. And just the thought of Jesus coming to the rescue causes Paul to erupt in praise. Do you see what he says? Glory forever and ever. Paul's not sitting around upset at Alexander. He's not disappointed because of Demas. He's not upset that nobody came and stood with him. He is in the middle of a worship set, giving glory to God because he is the one who strengthens him. He's already told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that in my weakness, he is made strong. So he's giving glory to God for the way that he has been rescued. What's your excuse for not worshiping? Had a hard week? Um, your, your week was not as hard as Paul's. And yet Paul was committed to give glory to the Lord in spite of some disappointing church people.